I was thinking today as I was uh, putting together in my mind and in, in my notes what I thought I'd, I'd talk about today, uh, how different a metta talk is sounding to me as I give it now uh, than it would have uh, five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago when I began my metta practice. And uh, not that I didn't always love it and feel like it was a great benefit and, and really such a transforming practice for me. But I, I was really thinking today about how much, uh, how, how proud I am of it, how much of a weighty practice I think it is, how staggering it is in its implications. I think to myself, I thought back to well, when, on those occasions when people have asked me, um, because people have the, the, in our vocabulary, we talk about practicing mindfulness and practicing loving kindness, and people will say, how much of your day do you practice mindfulness and how much do you practice loving kindness? What percentage? So the correct answer to that is I practice mindfulness uh, 100% of the time and lo loving kindness also 100% of the time. And they're not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, they're mutually inclusive. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that I don't ever get distracted, but my resolve would be to be practicing them 100% of the time. Whether or not I live up to my resolve is something else. But but that my resolve would be to do that. Why would I want less than an awakened, clear mind all the time so that I could make choices that brought happiness to myself and the people around me and uh, ended suffering for myself and the people around me? And it seems to me that the same with metta practice. <laughs> Why would there be a moment that went by in which I wanted any possibility of barring the door to any aspect of my life, particularly as represented by people in my life. So if I say to people, I do metta practice, I think I do, I like to think that I am doing, dedicated to doing loving kindness practice 100% of the time. It doesn't mean that I go around all day saying phrases, muttering under my breath, you know, <laughs> looking peculiar. And it doesn't mean, even if I say I'm practicing mindfulness all the time, that I'm knowing where every single breath is, it means that I am trying to be alert to the presence of or absence of goodwill in my mind as much as I can. It's really the way that I think about my practice. When people say, what is your practice? I say I practice metta primarily, and what I mean is I pay attention to the presence or absence of goodwill in my mind. If it's present, I try to augment it. If it's absence, I try to cultivate it. If the opposite is present, like ill will, I certainly try to do something to end it in my mind. It's actually, if you wanted to think of it, as a subset of mindfulness. It's mindfulness of the third foundation of mindfulness. And probably isn't enough time in tonight's talk to do a, a whole presentation of how that works. But just in brief, for those of you who know about mindfulness practice, the Buddha uh, gave a very important 
uh, teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness, they were the four ways in which one could pay attention. One could pay attention to the body and the breath and the body. One could pay attention moment to moment to those, the changing experiences in the body and of the breath. One could pay attention to the changing experience of finding, uh, uh, the, the changing, um, the continual change of the arrival of experience and the, and the distinguishing between pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. One could look at the kind of feelings that arise in oneself as experiences happen. And you think to yourself, well, I have many different kinds of experiences. Sometimes I'm delighted, sometimes I'm disgusted, sometimes I'm this, sometimes I'm that. I don't just have three feelings. But actually, there are three categories of feelings. There are the feelings that are primarily neutral, feelings primarily pleasant, feelings primarily unpleasant. And it's important to know about that and notice them. It's completely a field of practice just by itself. Some people have their whole practice dedicated to mindfulness of the arising and passing away of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. It's a way of having a first-hand experience of the ephemeral nature of everything, that things keep changing. One minute, we watch how in a course of a day, uh, how moment to moment your experience is pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. Was it really pleasant? Ah, now it's not pleasant at all. One thing happens, another thing happens, happens all day long. If you watch your mind sometimes, I, will, I, I think to myself, we should congratulate our minds at the end of the day from having to have adapted themselves so many times to, oh, great, fooey. Oh, this is good. Oh, I'm all right now. Wow, no, I'm not all right. Oh, this is good. At the end of the day, it's no wonder we're tired. And to be able to, and, and it's also important to see those pleasant and pleasant and neutral, because if we don't see it, then we tend to really try to push them away and make believe it's really not fooey and it's really not whatever it is. And it's the pushing, in fact, that creates suffering. So hugely important domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, Mindfulness, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, of mindfulness of truth, mindfulness of the way things really hang together, that uh, the, 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 the things that we begin to really understand, that, the, that, that life experience is essentially, because it's ephemeral, unsatisfactory, that when we cling to things or insist that they be different from how they are, then we suffer, that things have sequelae and Everything is arriving because of a cause and the part of future, future sequelae that what we call this net of karmic interconnection is really happening all the time. can really pay attention to that fourth domain or you can pay attention to the third domain of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the content of mind. Mindfulness of mind. If you read it in the sutta, it says, the Buddha will, gives examples, he said, the practitioner will know mind is filled with anger, mind is empty of anger. Mind is filled with thoughts, mind is empty of thoughts. And it's actually not uh, presented as this is a bad thing or this is a good thing. It's just a thing thing. That's what happens with minds. And sometimes minds are filled with benevolent feelings and sometimes not. And I really think that the essence the, uh, the, the great crucial discovery 
is that when the mind is filled with benevolent feelings, or if not filled, at least moved by benevolent feelings, then happiness is part of our experience. That benevolent feelings that are expressed in the desire to connect in caring with ourselves, with other people, with people we know, with people we don't know, with life itself, to connect with pleasant feelings is to rest comfortably in a life with, without feeling um, lonely, without feeling alienated, without feeling victimized, to feel part of the really fabric of life experience, sharing with everyone the fact that life is difficult in a great uh, enfolding web of compassion, sharing with everyone the delights that are also part of life experience, sometimes ours, sometimes others, to say it's an extraordinary thing to be a human and part of this enterprise. Sharing with everyone the desire to lie down in peace and get up in peace, just the regular kinds of things that we wish our friends and wish our family and wish ourselves. I've been noticing that at part of the speech pattern has been changing in this country, that instead of saying goodbye, as people normally used to, people are saying, be well. Be well, you notice that? People are saying, be well, be well, be well. I don't think that's bad. I think that's actually lovely. I mean, it's a, a variation of goodbye, which is also a wish for support for people. But that's the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the presence or absence of benevolent feelings, in the, of every kind of feeling in the mind, but specifically loving kindness <laughs> for me is attention, mindful attention to that realm of my experience. And sometimes I know it by its absence. When I'm maybe driving my car and I begin to think about something that somebody said at a meeting or something, and I think to myself, I don't feel so happy about the fact that they said that. As a matter of fact, that wasn't so nice to say. Just like they usually say nice things, not nice things. And that person is always pretty much responsible for messing up a meeting. And tomorrow when I see them, I, it's not that I'll say anything, but I won't be so friendly. So they'll actually get it that something's wrong. And I could, my mind could start in on the story like that. And after a while, I'll be driving along, and after a while, I actually realize that I don't feel good that my body is tense, my mind is not happy. And it's like a bell goes up and says, ding dong, not happy. And uh, all of a sudden, I realize that what I've done is I've taken the story, I've elaborated it, and I've run with it. However much I know that the, you know, the road to indignation doesn't lead any place good, always it leads to the same place, to suffering. And how it's really a volitional act to say, I'm not going there. Tomorrow I'll talk to that person in a wise and thoughtful way, and now I let it go. Breathe in and breathe out. May they be well, may I be well. We lie down in peace and wake up in peace. We, each of us are going to be practicing, as we are this week, many of you have been practicing before. We practice on this kind of individual level to keep the mind free of rancor towards the people we know, and sometimes the people we don't know. <coughs> And what I was thinking about today, when I was thinking about how I wanted to put this to you, I was thinking about how at this point in the history of the world, how not only um, 
I used to think of this as a lovely practice or a night's practice. I think of it now as a, a world-saving practice that imagine what would happen if the world woke up tomorrow and people thought about their neighbors. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. And the neighbors thought about their neighbors. And everybody thought about their neighbors. And everybody, wider and wider circles, thought kind thoughts about each other. You would have a new world. We would, send, we would suspend the spiraling violence, the spiraling greed. It's a, it's a, it's a feasible thing for human beings to do something as unusual as renouncing <laughs> all violence and all enmity. Maybe there was a time evolutionarily when millennia ago when the world was young, when people lived in small communities and had to take care of their own community and had to look out for, oh, here come strangers, here come strangers. Let's guard our own stuff from those strangers. But the, it's banal already to say that the world is one community. But we are, and what any of us does makes a difference for everyone else. I was thinking really about, I was, uh, as I was putting this together, I was all of a sudden uh, hearing John Lennon singing, Imagine. Imagine. What would happen if everybody woke up tomorrow and said, wait a minute, we're doing it all wrong. We don't have to fight with each other. Especially in these times where if you turn on the television, you can see in real time human beings shooting each other with intent to kill. It seems so bizarre. If we thought about it, if we stopped, if there was a moratorium that everybody stopped and just put everything down and look around and think, what are you doing? This is not a human thing to do. It's a feasible thing. I got a, a, a newsletter. This is uh, volume one, number two, from uh, an organization called META, which is the uh, Marin, I mean, it's, a, it's an acronym for uh, Marin Educational something, something. Where does it say what that acronym is? Doesn't matter, it means they're teaching nonviolence. And it's spreading all over the world, along with an organization in Iraq called La Onf, which it also means nonviolence in Arabic, with uh, also Peaceful Tomorrows, which is an American group of 9-11 uh, victims against violent retaliation coordinated with other organizations to create recognition for the nonviolent movement in Iraq and in other countries in the world. And it's talking about specifically the, the nonviolent movement in Iraq and uh, talks about uh, organizers in neighborhoods. It says, activists tell school children, nonviolence brings you music and soccer balls. Violence only brings you danger and death. In, I mean, think about that. It's so. It's like such a simple sentence. 
Nonviolence brings you music and soccer balls. Violence brings you danger and death. In one inspiring episode, a La Onf activist said to teenage boys who had been tearing down the organization's posters, I know you're brave enough to be violent, but are you brave enough to be nonviolent? And the boys immediately joined the project and helped hang posters throughout the neighborhood. So I was very taken by that. And I thought that I, I, if I were going to give a name to this talk tonight, I would probably call it, are we really brave enough to do this practice? If we really, really did it, we'd really be transformed. We'd come out different people. You know, I live in, uh, I live in uh, France part of the year, and uh, one of the things that touches me tremendously, uh, I bicycle a lot, and I bicycle a lot in rural France, and so uh, the bicycle uh, trips bring me through a lot of small cities. And uh, normally, in the middle of a small city, any small city, There'll be some uh, square of uh, ground that's set aside as a town memorial, patch of green and a memorial. And it will say, um, give a big list of names, and it'll say uh, 1914 to 1918, more, more pour la patrie, died for our country. And then, first of all, my mind often has to do a big explosion about they didn't die for the country, they died for greed, and people, anyway, it does a whole big explosion about that. <laughs> like I'm gonna edit the <laughs> monument. And they really did die for greed and, and boundary and power and all of that. But whatever motivated that war, it, it happened. And a lot of parents' children died in those wars. And you read names, and you read names of two or three people with the last, same last name. You think, what devastation happened? And I particularly think about it these days because, um, especially uh, now that the uh, European Union has open boundaries, uh, people drive around, and they're all over the place. And, it's not unusual, even uh, the fact that where I live is a fairly, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not Paris, it's not a big city, but in my small town, in cafes, people are speaking German and Spanish and Italian, as well as French and some English. And you think to yourself, I look around at people having a good time and partying in restaurants, and then thinking, uh, Fifty years ago, these people's grandfathers were killing each other, not far from here. Eighty years ago, their great-grandfathers were doing the same thing. I'm very happy that they're not doing that now, but I'm sorry it didn't stop sooner. And I'm sorry that there are still places in the world where people whose great-grandchildren someday may be having coffee with each other are currently killing each other. It's going to take an enormous upheaval, it's so counterintuitive to say it's my intention not to like everybody in the world equally well, 
but to really wish no one ill. To really wish that, to really know in the fiber of my bones and not forget it, that everybody wants as much as I do to be safe, come home to their family, get up and meet their friends, have a meal in safety, celebrate another birthday, be around to help a baby get born, be around to help a person die. Everybody does that. Everybody wants to do it. It requires, it would require, really the giving up of all the stories that we have about other people. It would require a big transfer, a big change of the story about that motivates greed, that I need more and having more makes me safer. But it also would require giving up all the stories that we have about who are our enemies and who are not our enemies. I would sometimes ask a, a group of people, as I guess I'm asking you now, I'm thinking not even of groups of people, but in our lives, this week together, we'll think of tomorrow probably about a close friend, and the next day about a, so to speak, neutral person, and the next day perhaps about a, 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 an enemy. We've gotten, I, th I think in, in the American Dharma scenes, we've uh, toned it down. We no longer call the enemy the enemy. We now say the difficult person in your life. But truth to tell, in the suttas, it's called the enemy. It's because in your mind, when you think of that person, you don't think, oh, oh here's my difficult person. In your mind, you think, ah, oh, here comes that person that, uh, that I don't like so much. And how really to not have any enemies left. And all of the stories of enemies that we have, we keep those enemies because we keep telling ourselves our stories. Even the personal stories, never mind the big global political stories. Personal stories, he said such and such to me, he did such and such to me, I'll never forgive so and so because of that and this. So I sometimes say to people, see this glass of water? I have dissolved in it some herb that is uh, invisible. And if you take a sip of this herb, you will forget every story you know about that keeps everybody in their position of, I love them a lot, I love them uh, pretty much, not so much as a lot, but pretty much. <laughs> and this one, all right, take it or leave it. This one, I'm not so crazy about this. This one, forget about it, that's my enemy. <laughs> that all those great, you know, it's hard to keep remembering which who is in which category. Because someone to someone suddenly in this category could do something over here and God, in the category. Or somebody does some little nice thing and they move up one category. Or they do a little not nice thing and they move down a category. You have to have all these categories going. Think of the mind where you didn't have to remember who you didn't like. It'd be a great relief, actually. It happened to me once. I might tell you that story in a little bit, but where I, well, anyway, I might tell it to you. If I tell it to you, then you'll know the story. But, <laughs> but I want, the end of the story I wanted to tell you is I often say that to a group of people, so I'll say it to you. How many people would take a sip of this water? How many people wouldn't take a sip of the water? 
A lot of people. So normally when I ask people, why won't you take a sip of this water? It looks like, you know, here's freedom. You won't have to know the liberation of not having to keep a list. And sometimes people give really story answers that I really empathize with. I really think I understand. They say, unless I had my list, I wouldn't remember who's dangerous and I wouldn't know who to stay away from and I might get hurt again. So, and the, the, and I, I really want to recognize that um, it's important to be discriminating, but I really mean for this to be amnesic about the energy that we have towards that person, not amnesic about what they did. Um, because actually, when, when actual forgiveness happens, it's not amnesia, it's just forgiveness. You know that it happened, it just doesn't make that big effect in you anymore. The other reason that people give about not taking a sip of the water is they say, I wouldn't be who I am anymore if I didn't have my stories. And I think that's true. We wouldn't be. Uh, I think it'd be a great relief for me if I didn't have my stories, including my stories about myself, whatever they are. So obviously, most particularly the stories about you don't do this well enough, or you don't do that well enough. But even the stories that I have that are stories about that that aren't pejorative stories. Why do I need that story? Because I might. Well, maybe it's a story about how good I am or something. And then maybe I'm not that good anymore. I have to really feel bad about it. Maybe if I could just live my life without it being in the bounds of some structure of who I am that I can either like or not like. I will tell you that one story just because I started it and, um, and I think it makes a good point. Um, in 1995 or six, somewhere about then, uh, I was very fortunate to be part of a group of um, Western teachers who were invited, Western Buddhist teachers who were invited to um, Dharamsala to meet with His Holiness the Dalai Lama for uh, three days of dialogue about how it is to teach Dharma in the West. And I was thrilled to be included and um, happy to go. And there were five days all together. One day after we got there, that we had for meetings between ourselves where we got to know each other because not everybody knew each other and planned what we were going to talk to with the Dalai Lama about. And one day at the end to have a kind of regroup and um, talk about it afterwards. And then three days of meetings. So it's a very, very long trip to Dharamsala. And uh, especially from the West Coast, if you fly to London, Overnight, you get a, um, a connecting plane which flies another eight or nine hours to Delhi. You arrive at Delhi in the middle of the Delhi night and go to sleep and don't sleep long enough and get up in the morning and then wait the whole day and take the night train from Delhi up to Patankot and then you get in taxi cabs and drive for four and a half hours along what seems always to be the edge of a cliff and a precipice. <laughs> So by the time you get there, there's no like turning back. You actually are there. 
and you really have a sense of um, you have to be there then. So the following morning, we met, and I remember looking around the room, and I knew probably half the people in the room. I, I knew them because they were Americans, and I'd perhaps taught with them, maybe a little bit more than half. There were Europeans, there were some South American teachers, there was somebody from Australia, there were people from all over the place. Some I knew and some I didn't. And of the people I knew, I liked most of them. Uh, and with a couple of them, I'd had some uncomfortable moments. So if I looked around the room talking about pleasant, unpleasant, neutral reaction, if I look around the room, I think, hmm, 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 good, 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 ah, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> ah, hmm, hmm, hmm. ah, something like that. You watch your mind, the please, 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 fooey, uh, like something like that. Please, please, fooey. Look who's there. So it's a, you know, it's not like heavy, but you know that. You feel your mind a little bit recoil because there is so-and-so who six years ago in a meeting in front of a lot of other people said some unflattering things about your point of view about something which you're now carrying around and took out of your file cabinet and remembered now, particularly for this occasion. <laughs> so, but I, you know, that's what keeps the stories going. That's how come you know it's fooey when you see that person. So, uh, and everybody's a little tense, I'm sure. And this is the first morning we're meeting without the Dalai Lama. We're just meeting to meet each other and talk about agendas. And uh, my colleague and friend, Jack Cornfield, was um, uh, directing that meeting. He was leading it, chairing that meeting. And uh, recognizing the fact that we didn't all know each other, he said, we'll go around the circle and uh, uh, each introduce ourselves. So, you know, everybody here has gone around the circle and introduced themselves. And usually it's my, you know, my name and where I live and what I do. So he didn't say that. He said, we'll go around the circle and we'll say our name. And why don't we each say the most uh, challenging, uh, a spiritual, uh, the, the most challenging uh, thing facing you now in your personal spiritual life and in your teaching. <laughs> Why don't we just do that? So, first of all, this is so Jack. I really want you to know that this is very, this is, I love him. And uh, if there is a way to cut to the chase, that's exactly what he'll know how to do. And I admire him for it, both for thinking of it and for being able to carry it off. Anyway, he said, that's what we'll do. And you don't have to volunteer, say, I'll go next, I'll start and we'll go around the circle. So it's all set, it's a fait accompli. That circle is gonna come around to me no matter what. There is no way that I can disappear or suddenly be back in the West Coast here. It's too far to go. And it's too impossible to prevaricate. You can't possibly not tell the whole truth. It wouldn't make any sense. Besides, the mind is so focused at that point, you couldn't think of the not truth, actually, to say. You really couldn't. I mean, it, it, you're, first of all, that's why I told you that travel story. By that time, the mind is so alert and so focused, there's nothing but what's the truth right in front of you. 
And so people started to go around the circle and quite touchingly, nobody didn't have anything to say on that. What is the most serious challenge facing you in your spiritual life and in your teaching life? Everybody had something to say and everybody said it, one after another after another. And when they said it, I was so touched by their candor. This person, and all people that I, I sort of knew that they were recognized teachers, it was, anyway, but everybody was struggling. This one struggles, this one struggles, this one struggles, this one struggles. And each one tells about the struggle, and you feel moved by it. And then they, they, this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. I suddenly realized that they had just gone by one of my fooies, and I had listened to this person tell his story, and I had felt the same moved about him as I had felt about the person before and the person after. When people share and they tell the truth and they're present, then you're moved, especially if your mind has got no room in it for the stories that it's been carrying around. You know, At that point, your mind is completely focused and the stories aren't there. And after the first one happened, I was a little bit down, I thought, whoa, I missed him. And I, you know, I actually appreciated him. And then I appreciated the next one, I appreciated the next one. And I really can't, I was going to say, I can't tell you what a relief it was, but I can tell you, it was a relief. It was a great relief. And it's not that I forgot what this person said X many years before that was so humiliating to me. At that point, it was irrelevant. At that point, this was a person like me, really glad to be there, really honored by being in that company, really telling the truth. It was tremendously touching. And I was worried about what I was going to say. Is this going to be acceptable, this, that, and the other? But what gets to you, you have to say your thing. And say your thing, and it must have been acceptable. Nobody fell over, and it went on to the next person. <laughs> and, um, and subsequently, in the course of the time that I was there, I uh, had lunch per by design. I think the various people who probably were holding me at that same heart's distance away that I was holding them sought me out. So we had lunch together or breakfast together. And we didn't specifically say, you know, it was that moment that I realized that. Da, da, da. But we really established a contact that was warm. And it felt very much better than not. And in my life, it's gone, it's 20 years almost, or 15 years. None of those people have become my closest friend in life. But it's very nice if I think about, are there people that my mind is stirred about in a negative way? They're not on that list anymore. And it's just uh, that much more of a relief to have them not there. In that moment, my mind was somehow fixed because when it was, you know, I once heard two people getting into an elevator. It was the cutest thing. I was, I, I, it was a, a conversation. I like the eavesdrop, you know. You may have noticed. I eavesdrop on conversations. And I came to an elevator in a hotel, and two men were talking, and they were about to get on the elevator. It was a, a psychology meeting somewhere. I guess there were psychologists. I was at the same meeting. And person A said to person B, well, you know about him, he's not really in his right mind. And then they got in the elevator, and the elevator was full, and the doors closed. And I was so sorry. First of all, 
probably a little bit I wanted to see who wasn't in their right mind. But the other thing is just the use of that phrase, not in the right mind. And I thought to myself, what is a right mind? I thought to myself, a right mind is one that's filled with wisdom, one that has enough equanimity that it can remember what's true, that everybody has peculiarities, everybody's a little impulsive sometimes, everybody says stupid things sometimes. That would be a right mind for me. A right mind is a mind that's tolerant. It says, this person at this moment, this is the best they can do. It's one of my favorite teachings is, uh, comes from a woman named um, Gwen, friend of uh, Donald's for a long time. Well, Gwen was in a class I was teaching once where we were, uh, the, uh, it was, it's this long-term Wednesday morning class that Donald and I both share now where the people have been in it for 15 years, so they really know each other. We were talking about having a kind of secret handshake or a secret hello when you meet in supermarkets or dentist's office or something, so to let the other person know that you know them from the class. So um, it all came up, we could say, we, one person would say, how are you? And the other person would say, I'm fine. And person A would know that fine did not mean that everything was good in your life, perfect. It meant that you were managing. That was, that was we had really talked about, uh, everybody's life is complicated. So that I said, well, that'd be great. We'll say, how are you? Fine, and we'll know. They have trouble, but they're managing, because everybody has trouble and is managing. And Gwen said, no, I don't do that. She said, when people say to me, how are you, Gwen? She said, I always say, I couldn't be better, because I couldn't. <laughs> Even when I'm terrible, I couldn't be better. And that's really true. I think it's, it's, a, it's a great teaching line. Isn't that a great teaching line? Couldn't be better. Even when I've lost my patience, I holler at my children, or I say something terrible to my partner. I couldn't be better. If I could, I would. Nobody purposely <laughs> suffers. I mean, wisdom is very simple. That's a right mind. If I can remember when someone is doing something that's upsetting to me, they couldn't be other. Then I don't have to make them a villain for doing what they're doing. And I don't have to feel victimized. And then I don't have to feel frightened. And I think one of the ways of talking about liberation, and living a life that's liberated, is not being afraid. So now I want to talk about the benefits of metta for two reasons. You have to look at your paper. I'm going to talk about it for two reasons. Here's a story about why I want to talk about it, and then we'll talk about the benefits of metta. The story about it is when I began my metta practice in 1985 in, uh, in Massachusetts, I went to sit for a couple of weeks with uh, Sharon Salzberg, who is now my friend and colleague as well. And Sharon was my metta teacher, and the first thing she said to me, actually I was getting private instruction because it was a Vipassana retreat going on, so I felt lucky about that. But uh, I, uh, I remember that the first thing she gave me to do that when we met is she said, here's a list of the uh, uh, 11 benefits of metta. Uh, so I want you to memorize this list. 
And uh, I said, okay, I'm, you know, people give me homework, I'm good on homework. Um, so I went back to my room and I sat down and I said to myself, people who, ben people who practice metta, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams, people love them. Angels love them, angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully. And I did it over and over and over again. I guess I did it over and over again. I can't remember if she said do it over and over or if she said memorize it. But to memorize it, you have to do it over and over. And besides, I liked it so much. I mean, imagine someone says, now you're going to start metta practice, and this is what's going to happen to you. Imagine if someone said, send away 49.95 product <laughs> And it's going to have these benefits. Who would not send away forty nine ninety five for these benefits? So I loved them. So I said them over and over and over again. And I noticed after some time of saying them that my mind was in a very buoyant mood. And I felt very uplifted. And I really had a, a, a direct understanding of what a focused mind, what a pleasure it was to have a focused mind a steady, focused mind in which nothing else was presenting itself. My stories weren't there, my worries. I'm in a strange place. Am I going to learn metta? Am I going to humiliate myself? I'm a mindfulness teacher. What if I can't learn metta? I could have worried about a hundred things, but I didn't because my mind was filled with concentration. And it's not that the words were magic. It's that the words were pleasant enough and actually seductive enough hey, this is what I could learn, that I really wanted to say them over and over again. But I really had a direct understanding of the nature of the concentrated mind and what a pleasure it is. And I wanted particularly to tell you that story because none of us can emphasize too much that this loving pra kindness practice that we're doing is leading to wisdom in the same way that vipassana practice is leading to wisdom. The, the, the form and the technique is a little different, but, and the technique relies more heavily on concentration in metta practice, more heavily on concentration to allow the mind to become still and uplifted, buoyant, out of which wisdom arises. We're going to wisdom however you get there. And this one is particularly using uh, concentration. So we'll say a lot, and came up in the interviews today, um, this is a little boring, um, this is not exciting, I can't, I can't remember the phrases, uh, I uh, say the phrases a number of times and then I say to myself, I said this already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really did say it already, but, but the, to somehow pass by all of the mind's arguments about why it's ridiculous to sit here, really with dedicated intention, making these resolves. It's not saying the phrases doesn't do it justice. You want to call it praying if you want, that would be closer. Or with ardor, making these resolves. Or wishing with all of one's mind. You might say that, that's what we're doing. Saying resolves is, doesn't quite come to the intentionality of it. 
So one of the things I love to do with people, so we'll do it now, is I'll, um, you, you have a chance to learn these by heart, and you have a chance also to see which of them is most appealing to you. If you were going to send away forty nine ninety five, which would it be that you'd want? But don't look at the page. Let's do a call and response. So you can feel when you say the response, which one really is intriguing to you. So I'll say, you say back, I'll say, you say back. People who practice metta, Sleep peacefully. Wake peacefully. Dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Devas love them. Devas will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Good, right? All those are nice. I noticed I said Davis. That's because I was suddenly imagining myself back with Sharon. We've been saying angels more recently because Davis is a poly word that means angels. I'll say angels the next time. Did you notice that one or another of those really appealed to you? Okay? You already with the one that appealed to you? So we're not exactly going to take a vote. We're going to do it this way. We'll recite them again, or I'll recite them. And you put up your hand for the one that's yours, okay? <laughs> no changing. <laughs> People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Something for, first of all, somebody had, at least one person had their hand up for everything. You know, there's a way in which I think they pretty much all mean the same thing. Sometimes people say to me, surely you don't think that poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you. I said, well, you know, first of all, I think it's a metaphor. I think it's poetry. <laughs> and I actually never tested it out. <laughs> I'd hope not to have to. But I actually would also think that it might in some way be the most profound of all, this, of all the benefits. Because... Um, you might actually die from poisons and weapons and fire. But it's a way of saying uh, the part of me that um, my mind would be untroubled about that, that I am uh, liberated from all fear. You know that the Buddha 
in, uh, at least in, in the folklore around it, has it that the Buddha taught metta to monks who were going out to meditate by themselves in the jungle and be in scary places with snakes and scorpions and dark and monsters. And it was supposed to make them not frightened of things. I think about not frightened, period, and that that would be great. There's a place in that same, uh, let's see if I see it right now, the place in this uh, meta bulletin that I got was a wonderful line about not being afraid of, um, I won't do it right if I don't see, if I don't read it. Continued uh, on page five. Da, da, da. There it is. Uh, uh -huh. hmm, hmm, hmm. Hmm. Usually I remember where it is exactly. about a woman who so devoted, one of the leaders here, being so devoted to nonviolence, she said a set of people, it was a really quite, quite <laughs> I'll find it because I want to read it to you right, but menaced by a group of, of a, a rioting group of people. Uh, she took a stand, to actually sat down in a way of saying, this is my place and I won't be moved, uh, in the way of nonviolent resistance. And the group that uh, uh, was attacking her surrounded her with cloths and poured kerosene on it and was about to light a fire to it. And uh, they didn't, she said, because I sat there and I was not afraid that they would kill me. So they were too afraid to kill me. Mm -hmm. That non-fear, fearlessness, has a tremendous effect on calming down a whole situation, on becoming fearless. And that's what I think that the poisons and weapons and fire won't harm. That we become fearless. So I thought I would say a few words about um, now making the, 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 the move from uh, those are the benefits. We become fearless, our minds become clear, our faces are serene, our nature is sweet so that people love us back, we're untroubled so that we sleep. All of them, I think that they're all pieces of each other. And I think that they're all the sequelae of really seeing clearly that there's nothing to be afraid of in this world. Things come and go. There is life and death, and there is anger. But there are things to be concerned about and to take action about. But fundamentally, you don't have to be frightened. Really, to be fully alive, we could be concerned and involved and engaged 
but not driven by fear, really inspired by love, really inspired by wisdom looking around and seeing about how much suffering there is in the world. One of the things I think about, about the usefulness of stopping a story, all the stories that we're telling ourselves, is that we get to look around and see, look how much trouble there is in the world from greed and from hatred and delusion, and become inspired not to add to it anymore with one's own greed, hatred, and delusion. Really inspired just because out of our own empathic mind's response. So I tell you all of that in order really to inspire you to take a set of phrases, because that's the technique that we're working with this week. It is true that people do loving-kindness practice without phrases. People do it sometimes by cultivating concentration on their breath. It's a, there are other ways to cultivate a very concentrated mind and then direct the intention towards goodwill. But this is a very beautiful way to use the phrases that incline the mind already to goodwill as the very um, object of attention and the, the, um, the stuff around which the mind becomes concentrated. So I'd like to say just a few things about choosing a set of phrases. <coughs> On that same piece of paper, with the benefit of metta, benefits of metta, are four sets of phrases on the bottom. <clears throat> the third one down, may I be free of enmity and danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. <coughs> Excuse me. is, I think, the most direct translation from the Pali phrases. And uh, it's the oldest set in English that I know. It's what I learned from my teacher 20 years ago. And uh, the truth is that even though I often say shorter phrases, or uh, when I teach these days, I don't you mostly use them because they've generally fallen out of disuse in the Western Buddhist community, because they're a little archaic and we don't exactly get at what's mental happiness and what's physical happiness. But the truth is that I said them to myself so many times that in my own practice, I'm often saying that if I'm riding in an airplane and my airplane starts to bounce, they go off by themselves. And they, it's like it uh, uh, pushes a button on a tape player and they start to play. So they're soothing to me. but. I really think that the most important thing in terms of developing a practice and developing concentration this week is, develop, is finding for yourself a set of phrases that you like, that are not too cumbersome, that, that you can say and remember, that you would like to say all of your life, and then say them. So sometimes people spend a great deal of time finding exactly the right phrase and editing and editing and editing and editing. <laughs> And um, I felt very happy years later when we started as a teaching community to be much more spacious and say, pick out phrases that you like 
I looked back and I thought, I was so happy that Sharon never even mentioned doing another phrase. She said, here are the phrases, say them. So I did. And it saved me so much problems. And you know, I actually don't know what uh, ease of well-being is, but I, you know, I figured that sounds nice, so that's OK. I, and I kind of figured out what the other things feel like to me. But I'd really like to encourage you to pick a set of phrases. The shortest set that we did today isn't here. May I feel safe? May I feel content? Or may I feel happy? Or may I feel peaceful? Heather this morning was saying peaceful. Later on, I was saying happy. I would say, may I be safe? May I, may I feel safe? May I feel happy? May I feel strong? And may I live with ease? I like saying, may I feel strong rather than may I be healthy. I would definitely like to be healthy. But uh, I really want to have a set of phrases because I'm so convinced that they write themselves into your neural patterns that uh, in the last days of my life, when I'm not healthy and I have enough strength to think, I want to be able to say the phrases that I've said my whole life without making new ones. And so I leave out the healthy and have strong counts as healthy, as strong as I can be. But healthy is fine. Pick out a set that you like and then do them. There's one more thing to say, I think, that would be maybe a helpful hint. Somebody said in a, in a, uh, in a uh, group meeting this afternoon, they said, you know, my mind gets tired. It's not even that I'm bored. Of the, 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 some people said I'm bored, I had enough already. But somebody, you know, just back to the phrase and back to the phrase and back to the phrase. It's hard. Used to sitting there, breath arrives, breath goes out, breath arrives, breath goes out. All of a sudden, you got to kind of screw it together for each phrase and be back. Mind gets tired. When it gets tired, rest. Stop. Don't drag your mind, your attention, into the next phrase. Stop. Open your eyes. Look out the window. Breathe for a while. Feel yourself breathe. Be sure that you stay present, feeling your body, looking outside seeing the green, seeing the rain. You can say to yourself encouraging words like, relax, stay still, don't go anywhere, take a breath, take another breath. When you catch your breath, you start again. May I be, may I feel safe, may I feel content. Whatever the phrases are that you're saying, I was giving the um, example of if you're running a marathon and you get tired, you walk for a little while and then you run again. You could do that here. You're not doing anything that is not actually um, coherent and resonant with your basic fundamental nature. Fundamentally, what we want most of all, all of us, is for ourselves and the people we love and care about to be safe and content and well and at ease and strong. So we're just relaxing into that truth about ourselves. 
and you peace out. So I wish you a continuing very good week together, and we'll sit quietly for a minute.